Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless. Before we get started on today's episode, I just want to give you a heads up that we're going to be talking about some distressing violence. So please listen with care. Some of them are carrying grief. Some of them are angry. Some of them, they're kind of lost right now. But we have the fire there for a reason for them, to help them. Randy Burns is a firekeeper from James Smith Cree Nation. He's one of the many people there who lost family in the mass stabbing that took place on September 4th, 2022. It was one of the worst in Canadian history. Last Monday, he tended to a sacred fire outside an event center in Melfort, Saskatchewan. That's where a coroner's inquest is being held into how Miles Sanderson killed 11 people and injured 17 others. Sometimes people don't know how to cry. And they put tobacco down there to to talk for them. Sanderson had a Canada-wide warrant for his arrest before his rampage. And even after, he eluded police for four days. Sanderson was charged with first-degree murder, but he died in police custody soon after his arrest, meaning he never stood trial. The inquest, which got underway last week and will run for a total of three weeks, includes testimony from police, the parole board, victims, and family members. Jason Warwick is a reporter with CBC Saskatoon. He's here to tell us what the inquest has revealed so far about the massacre on James Smith Cree Nation and its impact on the people who live there. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on Front Burner. You're welcome. So uh, it's still just under a year and a half since the attack, and, and really it was an incomparable trauma for the the people of the James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, the inquest started this past week, so I, I guess I'm curious, before it began, uh, how were folks in the communities feeling about it? It's unimaginable. Uh, the trauma that was experienced on that day, September 4th, 2022, when these mass stabbings occurred, again, 11 People killed and 17 mm-hmm. wounded and innumerable families uh, and communities affected it, at James Smith Cree Nation, but also in the neighboring village of Weldon, where there, there was one of the fatalities. I've visited the community a couple of times uh, in the week before the inquest began. They allowed me to come there and to meet with leaders. Mm-hmm. And I met with the chief coroner, actually, for the province, who was there meeting with families, trying to give them a bit of a warning about what was to come. Let's honor the people that passed away. Let's have their story told put rumors to rest so people factually know what happened and hopefully we can get some good recommendations at the end. I was able to take in some of the sweats and ceremonies that were taking place uh, Mm, on the First Nation, again, about 200 kilometers northeast of of Saskatoon. And and there was just a sense of heaviness. And that's a word they actually used. Uh, Everything was heavy. You could just feel a heaviness in the community. The hurt is still there. The grieving is still there. I'd just like to ask... uh, uh, our country, Canada, for many prayers for our people. 
I think it's going to be very uh, traumatic to see all of the uh, evidence, the physical evidence that's presented. Inquests are very uh, clinical, medical, graphic. There was uh, still a lot of anger, um, a lot of sadness, really but just a lot of tension about what was to come. And, and there was really mixed feelings, uh, and those have remained this week, uh, whether this inquest is even a good idea. The justice system has never, ever been kind to us Native people. So do we have faith in this justice system? Do we have faith in this? I don't think we do. I don't think we do at all. Because history, to us, has been very unjust. They'll be getting answers, but uh, yeah. is this just revealing and re-traumatizing people for its own sake? And, and, and give, give me a sense of how many people in the community are attending the inquest. A decreasing number. There were dozens of people affected by this very directly and, and their families. But there were only a few dozen people at most at any given time from the James Smith Cree Nation here. Uh, that's not including the people who are who are working to support everyone. So the, the mm. leaders came and the grief counselors came and the elders came to support all of those people who had to listen to this very graphic, detailed mm. testimony about their loved ones. And many people I talked to at James Smith said that they just didn't feel as though they could come. Uh, it was too traumatic. And uh, some do want updates, and there are mm -hmm. plans in place to, to update them regularly, but not have them sit through all of this. So what we heard last week was about what Miles Sanderson and his brother Damien were doing before the attacks, leading up to it. And, and one of the people who testified was Vanessa Burns. So, so that's Miles Sanderson's former common law partner. Yes. Who, I, I understand, suffered years of abuse from him. What, can you give me a sense of what she told the inquest about that period leading up to the attack? Well, um, most people say that her words were incredibly powerful. And this mm -hmm. was the first time that she has spoken. The, the longtime partner of the perpetrator of one of the worst mass stabbings in, in Canadian mm -hmm. history. Yeah, I just reopened everything, so. But I'm ready to move on with my life, too. Vanessa Burns talked about her life with Miles Sanderson, how they, they met when they were in their late teens, how he was very polite and charming at, at the start, mm -hmm. but very quickly it it descended with the addictions to alcohol, with the growing violence and coercive control, they called it, mm -hmm. and felt she couldn't leave. And it just grew and grew and grew. Weeks before the stabbings, Vanessa said she drove Sanderson around James Smith Cree Nation to sell drugs. Two days before the attacks, Sanderson brutally assaulted Vanessa while driving. His brother, Damien, known for calming Miles down, intervened, but it didn't last and then culminated in this mass stabbing incident in which we heard testimony that, that she was likely one of the targets that he actually uh, did not get to. Sanderson killed Vanessa's father, Earl Burns Sr., and stabbed her mother. Earl tried to chase Sanderson down in a school bus, but the vehicle was found in this ditch with the headlights on. The morning of the attacks, RCMP... There's another woman who testified too, Sky Sanderson. That's Damien Sanderson's wife. She describes this conversation she had with Damien two weeks before the attacks, where apparently he said, and I'll quote here, I think my brother's the devil or something. And also, I want to effing kill Vanessa. And when I do, I'm going to kill 10 others. Can you tell me more about what Sky heard from Damien? 
Well, yes, Guy Sanderson, again, is the, the longtime partner of Miles Sanderson's brother. So just to refresh uh, everyone's memory, uh, Miles Sanderson is the, the perpetrator of mm-hmm. all of these crimes. And, and in the early hours of this, some, including RCMP, thought that Damien Sanderson might be right. doing this as well. And uh, no one at that time knew that Damien Sanderson was actually the first victim of his brother's killing. The, his body was not discovered until after the others. And so there was a lot of talk about that, but also mm-hmm. these conversations that Sky Sanderson had with Miles about how he gave indications that he was planning something major. And there were a series of text messages between her and and Damien and, and others that showed an escalating level of threat, I guess you could call it. They were increasingly ominous texts, particularly from Damien, talking about him and Miles and how they weren't going to be taken alive and right. how they were going to go down together and all of these things. And and she uh, testified and said later that that she assumed this was just bravado or just bragging or just talking tough. And mm. in Damien's case, she believes that that is all that it was. But in Miles's increasingly twisted uh, reality, this is exactly what he was wanting to do. Right. So, so I, I know this guy that the Damien's wife actually called the police the day before the rampage. And when, when she was speaking last week, this is something that, that came up the, the inquest heard from both her sky and the police about why her call didn't lead to Damien and miles arrest. Right. Can you tell me about that? She did call the day before when they had taken her vehicle, uh, without permission, right. They had looked around for it. And, and at, at that point, as you can imagine, RCMP testified that a call about a, a stolen vehicle was not a high priority. That detachment alone gets an estimated 6,000 calls for service every year. In her only interview since the stabbings, Sky told Global News' Ashley Stewart she reported her husband and his brother to police 24 hours before the stabbings took place. Yeah, I was afraid for my safety. And then, so they dispatched the whatever, and then they... You know where Damien possibly might be? I was like, look around the reserve, he's hiding. So I understand after that call from Sky, police did locate the vehicle near a house in James Smith. Yes, they did. At that point, again, they were looking for a stolen vehicle. Right. They were looking for Miles Sanderson because he, he did have an outstanding warrant. They did obtain permission to go in. Uh, they went into the basement and Damien Sanderson gave officers a false name. And at that point, mm-hmm. RCMP in their database had an outdated photo and yeah. they didn't look into it further. At that point, Miles Sanderson, the killer, was actually in that house just minutes earlier, but saw the RCMP coming and ran into the bushes. Again, the response from RCMP was that at this point, we weren't dealing with an imminent, urgent situation. This was a, a warrant and a, a stolen vehicle. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat this story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So note, 
that Sky Sanderson testified that she told police Damien was definitely inside the house and to go back and check again. And also, she informed them that they were using an out-of-date photo. But then another one of the people who testified was Staff Sergeant Robin Zetner, and he laid out how he says Miles Sanderson committed these attacks. So according to police, what was he doing and saying as he went on this rampage? Sure. Well, there were 42 separate crime scenes, Mm. 257 witnesses that were interviewed. This is the largest investigation, criminal investigation in Saskatchewan's history. We spent an entire day on the 48 hours leading up to the attacks in in the testimony. And they talked about how Damien Mm. and Miles uh, returned to James Smith. And also um, Vanessa was brought by Miles and forced with him to sell cocaine in the community and and then collect on drug debts. And again, this this violence that was was increasing, this paranoia in his mind that was was increasing. And uh, as he was going from house to house to house over more than a dozen locations in those early hours of September 4th, And then circling, he actually circled back to a few of them. He was saying things like, do you know how many bodies I've got? But then other times he was just being very matter of fact, demanding car keys, demanding cigarettes or alcohol. And we did hear from testimony from others who, who said that this was not a random act of violence. This was not about how many people he thought he wanted to kill. This was very specific in his paranoid brain, likely high on a number of substances, that he believed he had a grievance with each and every one of these people or each and every one of these people who is connected to the person that he wanted to do violence against. And again, just staggering how, how much damage was done in such a short period of time. So, so sorry, just to, to give me a little more sense of what that, I guess in his, you know, twisted logic, what is that logic? Cause he was letting some people go, right. And, yes. and there was specific targeting of others. Just briefly help me understand I guess, as best we can, what his logic was. He, uh, as the forensic psychologist and the lead RCMP officer investigator uh, testified that in his brain, these were all grievances, they called it. Criminal psychologist Matt Logan says Sanderson showed many signs of psychopathy. He says Sanderson may have had fetal alcohol syndrome, ADHD, and intermittent explosive disorder, often having... And some of them were were reactive, for example, when, when his brother Damien refused to go along with this plan of violence and and tried to break it up. That's when Damien was an impediment and needed Mm. to be eliminated. And so that's why Damien, they believe, was the the first killing. The others, they believe that he had specific ideas in his mind, whether it was a perceived connection to uh, a gang or uh, an ex-partner who rejected him or uh, many other reasons. A lot of them were not factual or, or not real, but nevertheless, some he left alone and others became his victims. There were some, amid all of this, you know, horror and tragedy, there were, there were also some stories of heroism yes. by some of the folks in the community who were, you know, trying to help stop Sanderson. Can you tell me about those a bit? Yes, uh, definitely. So Earl Burns is one of the people who uh, was held up uh, as one of the heroes mm. of this inquest. And for Vanessa Burns, the ex-partner of Miles Sanderson and Deborah Burns, her sister, uh, they talked about and the witnesses heard about how he actually saw the attacks at his property and some of his loved ones. And he was actually stabbed and he gave mm. chase in a school bus to try and stop Miles Sanderson, who he correctly believed he was on his way to do more violence. And so 
We don't know exactly how it happened, but unfortunately, Earl Burns was found deceased on that bus on a grid road. And so we, we heard about his heroism, but then we also heard about others. And the, the first RCMP officer to respond, it was again, Tanner Maynard. And he talked about how he walked into one of the homes and he saw someone giving CPR to a woman and he could see that the, the woman was uh, clearly dead, uh, had died at this point already, but he encouraged the, the relative to continue giving CPR. And he said he knew it was likely futile at that moment, but it was still important. He said, he said, you always want to give the opportunity for family members to say they did everything they could to save the lives of their, their loved ones. And so amid all of this chaos, some, some very brave acts. There's been a lot of criticism of the police response. There's one RCMP officer who apparently stopped for fast food on his way. Uh, there were a couple of police officers who drove past the school bus that Earl Burns, who, who you mentioned earlier, was was dying in. And then the photo that the police sent out wasn't actually of Miles Sanderson. It was a, a different person with the same name. So I guess I'm just curious how the how the police are defending themselves here. You summarized it well. There are uh, quite a number of criticisms or at least questions about how RCMP uh, responded to this. And I'll take a couple of the examples that you mentioned. The the detachment commander at the time for that detachment, he he was responding after those two officers to that first that first murder scene. And again, he did stop for fast food on the way. And uh, he testified that at that point, he believed it to be a secure scene of an act of violence that had already been committed. And he believed mm-hmm. his officers were there all day and that they would need food. And so he mm-hmm. says that in hindsight, if he had known there would be much more than, than they believed there was at that moment, he would have never never stopped at that moment. The other concern, again, was that Earl Burns, who we just talked about uh, in the school bus, was passed by at least four times by RCMP driving along that stretch of grid road. The RCMP testified they did see that school bus and it did concern them. It did look out of place, but they had multiple specific complaints of active stabbings that were going on at specific locations and didn't feel that they had time to stop. I was somewhat angry, right, uh, wondering why why help didn't get to him sooner. But talking to the actual police officer that attended the scene and seeing his facial expression and hearing his voice and seeing that he's a human being as well and that he's affected by this too. Deborah says, and so quite a number of criticisms and questions, and those are all being interrogated uh, here at the inquest over these three weeks. There was also, you know, I think a, a more considerable and, and, and very understandable sense of outrage that Miles Sanderson wasn't already in prison when these attacks happened. J- and just to lay it out for folks, uh, you know, Sanderson had 78 convictions between 2004 and 2019. He was given statutory release from prison in uh, 2021, and he was later declared unlawfully at large and was never caught. So, what else do you think we might learn about his release and the fact that he wasn't, you know, in custody? 
That's one of the big questions that's expected to come up in the next uh, week or two as the inquest continues. Many people are wondering why he was let out, the length of sentence that he received, why he had violated his parole but had not been taken back into custody. And so uh, those are all questions that we're expecting to hear more about in the coming days. As the coroner said, we're, we're over the hump, as he put it now, with the specific details mm -hmm. of uh, what happened on those days leading up to and including September 4th, uh, a lot of the traumatic details and people involved. And now we're looking mm -hmm. at more of the issues, whether it's the, the parole system and the correction system, whether those worked in this case, whether it's addiction services in these communities or whether they're adequate, mm -hmm. many different issues. I mean, the, the overriding rationale here is that we're trying to prevent something like this from happening as much as that's possible. So at the end of this inquest, six members of its jury are going to make recommendations to exactly that point, you know, helping prevent an attack like this from happening again. Some of the members of the jury are Indigenous, others aren't. What kind of potential action have folks in the community been talking about already? I'm just curious to, to see where this might be leading. Uh, it's it's just that. They're wanting better addiction services uh, in the community, more supports for mental health and cultural revival which they say are, are key to the, the long-term uh, health of the community. They're talking about uh, policing in uh, First Nations communities, and uh, they've cited several successful examples, uh, some in uh, other parts of Saskatchewan and, and elsewhere, where it's helped to decrease uh, violence if there's faster response times when things happen, but also to have a more responsive police service in the community. But there was also testimony that RCMP may be needed, at least for the short or medium term, to be closer to the community, actually, and more involved in the community until this First Nations police force can be trained adequately and, uh, and feels comfortable taking over. All right, uh, Jason, thanks so much for spending time talking to us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, that's it for today. I'm Damon Fairless. Thanks for listening to Frontburner. I'll talk to you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.